Coach Corey Wayne, and this is my video coaching newsletter. And the topic of today's newsletter is going to be how the economy really works. This is something that affects everybody. All of us live in a world where we have a banking system that uses what's called an elastic currency. In the United States, obviously, we have the dollar. You've got China's got their own currency. Russia has their own currency. Most sovereign countries are actually the very definition of a sovereign country is one that has its own central bank and has its own money supply. And so you say, well, why should I care about this? Well, if you just look at the last 10 years, we've all been through a boom and bust cycle. And if you look historically, if you look back going hundreds of years, it tends to do this, up and down, up and down. The economy booms and then it crashes. The economy booms and then it crashes. And then what happens when it crashes? I'm sure everybody watching this knows somebody that financially got the shit kicked out of them when the, the, when the economy went in the shitter back in 2007 and 2008. And so what I wanted to talk about today is how money circulates, where it comes from because pretty much 99.99% of the people that are actually watching this video, it's not going to be what they expect. And if you're starting a business or you have a business or you have a great career that you want, depending on where your industry is and how susceptible it is to the boom-bust cycle, like especially like for me personally because I was in the real estate and the mortgage industry, what I was personally seeing is that banks were lending money so fast, our average sales price on homes that we were selling like was, was 189 dollars almost $190,000, that was the average. Within six months time, because there was so much money floating around and you had so many people getting loans, a lot of them you've probably heard, you've seen 60 Minute Stories and stuff where they talk about liar's loans or basically, as long as you had decent credit, you could say that you made whatever you needed to make in order to get a loan. And so you had people buying two, three, four houses in new home communities, building them buying a $300,000 house and then eight, 10 months, a year later when the house was finished under construction, the thing had gone up 50 or or $100,000. So for us, like especially like when we're selling just existing regular houses, within six months, those houses that were 190000 appreciated to over 300000 which was just ridiculous. And so in any industry, when you have too much money chasing an asset or like what you see in the boom bust cycle all the time is eventually the banks get to the point where they are so reckless with their lending and they lend so much money and they get involved in such risky instruments that it starts to collapse and when it starts to contract all the people that are on their fringes especially the people that are living paycheck to paycheck they're the first ones to stop making their mortgage payment and if you invest in real estate or you're in the real estate industry and you understand how this cycle works, you can really profit significantly from it. And also when it comes to business or your career, you can also take financial decisions to get out of the way so you don't get fucking wiped out. Because I know I personally lost millions of dollars when the economy went in the shitter in 2000, between 2004 and 2007. I lost a lot of my net worth. And if you look back, like I look back over my life, I'm 46 now. This has happened several times. In the early early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, you had the SNL crisis. Uh, 
you had a lot what happened was you had people abusing the system you had a lot of doctors a lot of lawyers buying rental properties and using depreciation to write off all of their income and then congress comes along and starts closing the the loophole and then it start and then there's no more incentive for doctors and lawyers to basically write off all their income and pay next to no nothing in taxes so what happened they stopped buying properties and then all these people that were over leveraged it just created a fucking domino effect of defaults and when people are defaulting because remember banks are in the business to lend money what do they do they stop lending money or they don't lend as much that causes the economy to contract at an even faster rate so the economy goes into the shitter and it takes usually five ten years for that to recover when i first got into investment real estate i remember one of the first houses that i bought i bought one that was part of the real estate investment trust which was part of that SNL crisis. This was going back, I think it was 97 I bought this particular house. I paid like $6,000 for this house. And it was a 45, when I got it all fixed up, it was a $45,000 house. So I made a tremendous profit on this particular property because of that. I had a, a good friend of mine, he sold his last company for $100 million and now he's just, he's an equity investor and so he invests in startups and things of that nature. Well, when he was younger in the 70s, he got he had a lot of a lot of money in real estate. He was a multimillionaire. Same thing. He got over levered. Didn't really understand how the banking system worked and how the economy went through its boom bust cycle. He was a multimillionaire, and guess what? He got completely fucking wiped out. Had to file bankruptcy. Had nothing left. Had to start all over again. And anybody that has made any kind of significant amount of money in their life, they've been. At some point in time in their life, they've been on the wrong side of an economic downturn. And I teach self-reliance and part of being self-reliant is understanding how the economy works because it affects everybody. Whether you pay attention to politics or you pay attention to what economic realities are, when the economy goes boom and when the economy goes bust, it will affect you and it will affect your income earning potential. And if you don't know what's going on, it will cause you a shitload of financial pain. So I have a few quotes I'm going to go through with you and just share what I've learned because I used to be in the banking business. My company, we lent out around half a billion dollars in loans and when I was in the industry. So I'm very familiar with it and how things work from the lending side of things and the way you think banks work and the way – what you a lot of people think, oh, the president, he's the one that determines how the economy does. Well, Presidents really don't have much – they have some influence but they don't really have a lot of control over whether the economy goes boom or it goes bust. It's really about circulation and there's a quote from one of our founding fathers and I posted this on Instagram uh, you know, a couple months back and it's so true. This is a quote by John Adams and the quote says, all of the perplexities, confusion and distress in America arise – not from the defects in their constitution or confederation, not from want of honor or virtue, so much as from downright ignorance of the nature of coin, credit, and circulation. So this is one of the founding fathers of the United States of America saying basically all the problems that we have economically in our country are just because people don't understand what money is. They don't understand where it comes from. They don't understand how it circulates. They don't understand what debt is and how it comes from, how money is created, how it moves in circulation, what causes it 
the economy do well and what causes it to go in the shitter. So I'm going to, as quick as possible, go through this and explain it to you because this is something we all need to know. We all need to understand this. Even if we don't want to, we don't think it's important to us, it will bite you in the ass financially if you just ignore and say, I don't care. I just want to learn to get laid, dude. I want some pussy. Well, at some point in your time, in your lifetime, you will experience it and you'll be on the wrong side of an economic downturn. And Take it for somebody who's lost millions of dollars and has had plenty of friends that have lost millions of dollars and some of them that have gotten completely wiped out and had to start all over again and that ain't a lot of fucking fun. I had another friend who was worth $500 million He in this last economic downturn. He got completely wiped out. He was on fucking food stamps. I mean to have all that, all that real estate and all those assets that he spent 20 years building up, he got caught on the wrong side of the economic downturn and he got fucking wiped out and he lost everything and he had to completely start over. That fucking sucks. That's demoralizing. That's those are the kinds of things that are really difficult to recover from, especially as you get older. I mean, you look at all those people that got ripped off by guys like Bernie Madoff and those Ponzi schemes. You feel for them because they're too old to go back to work. It's like what, you, know, you just you feel bad. So the idea is to not be one of those people. So I have a quote that I wrote, and then I'm going to go through some of these other ones and explain this stuff. So the quote says. Everything that most people think they understand about money, economics, wealth building, and financial security is totally wrong. Money exists for two reasons. To be a medium of financial exchange that makes commerce and the sale or purchase transactions easy. And number two, to be a store of value where you literally translate your gifts, your skills, your talents, your time, and your assets into easily tradable and exchangeable paper, coin, or digital money receipts. In other words, think of money like a paper receipt. Most people think that when they borrow money, they are borrowing money the bank has from its other customers. This is a myth. A bank's purpose is to facilitate stable money circulation by expanding the money supply via creating loans out of thin air. Banks use fractional reserve banking, which enables them to create up to 10 times the total amount of their customers' money in their bank accounts out of thin air and lending it at interest. For example, if a bank's cumulative amount of all of their depositors' bank accounts is $10 million, then the bank can create up to $100 million out of thin air and lend it at interest. The economy expands when banks create money out of thin air by creating loans and lending it at interest. Every time you use your credit card, borrow money, get a car or home loan, you are borrowing money that did not exist until you got the loan or spent it into existence by swiping your credit card. When the banks stop lending or reduce their lending during an economic downturn, the money supply in circulation will shrink. So when you look at like 2007, 2008, in the U.S. economy alone, the money supply, $3 trillion basically got sucked out of the economy. And I think at the time, our total economic output per year, I think was like around $16 trillion. So when $3 trillion just all of a sudden stopped circulating, that's in essence, you know, for the most part, it was loans that stopped circulating because most of that money was circulating was coming from loans. And so what happened? It's just dominoes. You had housing developments were 
I mean, it was amazing because I, I was still occasionally selling foreclosure properties and I would go into these new developments with all these new homes and there's like two people living on the street and all the rest of the houses, the, the weeds are three feet tall and it was just like a ghost town. It was really – I had never seen anything like that before in my life. This causes the economy to contract and who suffers the most when this happens? The people who are living paycheck to paycheck are the first to stop paying their bills. This creates a domino effect. Economic recoveries can often take five to ten years to recover from the worst monetary circulation contractions. The economy tends to boom and expand until the banks get too reckless with who they lend money to, which creates bubbles and loans that borrowers start defaulting on. Economic contractions bring foreclosures, repossessions, unemployment, and government being unable to pay their bills. This is known as the boom and bust cycle. As long as the world's banking system uses elastic currencies, the up and down boom bust cycle will be a fact of life. Therefore, as a sovereign, free, and self-reliant human being, you should always know your downside financial risk if the economy does not do what you expect it to when making financial commitments. And so what you hear a lot of bullshit in the, in the media and TV. And what's interesting is 99% of all politicians and all these idiots, the talking heads in the media, it doesn't matter what your favorite channel is, they don't know their asshole from a hole in the ground when it comes to understanding the banking system. They talk a lot about debt. They talk a lot about governments borrowing money but they don't really understand the system and how it works. And like I shared in a quote, if a bank has a million dollars in my money and your money and all the rest of the people that belong to the bank as depositor income, then they can create up to 10 times that out of thin air and lend it at interest. So if a bank has a million in depositor money, they can create $10 million out of thin air and lend it at interest. I mean, they literally have a printing press most of the time, it's all digital. Obviously, they're not printing physical money. You get a house loan or a car loan. Somebody goes to a computer. They punch it in and they wire the money to a title company for closing. But at the end of the day, that money didn't exist until the loan was created. I mean what a great business. I mean is it any wonder when you walk into a bank why there's all that glass and marble in there? They literally have a money printing press. That's why you hear the politicians bitching and complaining especially during this last downturn when this shit hit the fan. The banks aren't lending. We gave all these fuckers money to bail them out and they won't lend it out. Well, why wouldn't they lend it out? Because there was no borrowers that were good that were good risks. So they stopped lending money out. And so the money supply contracted. A lot of people went on government assistance to pay their bills. And what's interesting, when you look at the property is – a bank doesn't take a loss on a foreclosure until they sell it once they've taken it back. So what you saw is that banks would file what's called a list pendants and basically public records saying, hey, this person hasn't paid their loan. We are basically in the process of foreclosing and getting the property back. But they didn't do anything with the foreclosure because if you got a $200,000 loan but the house is only now worth $100,000, as soon as the bank sells that to somebody that buys it from them after they foreclose and say they sell it for hundred grand, they got a hundred thousand dollar loss they got to write off. So what's interesting about that, and the banks have all the power, 
is that they just file a list pendants. They don't do anything with it and they wait for the market to come back. And then once it's come back, then they foreclose on it. And then I'm sure many watching this probably knew had friends or family or maybe you personally were living in a house that you stopped paying on. And I had I got a friend of mine that I know because the he got an attorney, and the somewhere in the in the chain of title, the loan got sold so many times it just disappeared. So the banks can't really prove that they have a valid lien on his property. So he, in essence, has gotten this half million dollar property free and clear. It's it's quite comical. But like I said, if if the bank can, if they don't foreclose on it, they can say, okay, well, this two hundred thousand dollar loan, even though they know it's worth only a hundred thousand now, they can say it's worth whatever they want. It's a it's a non-performing asset in essence. So if a, if a if you borrow a hundred grand from a bank and you don't pay it off. Obviously, that hundred thousand dollar loss they have to take, but normally you borrow a hundred grand and you pay the hundred grand back, and obviously that so that goes back to zero. But you're also giving them interest, their their profit on the loan. I mean, it's such a great business. And so if we we look and then you hear like, well, what's the Federal Reserve? How does the Federal Reserve have to do anything with that? So give an example. So when the U.S. government borrows money, the Treasury prints. A treasury bond, they basically – it's in essence a promise to pay. It's like an IOU. They give it to the Federal Reserve, say it's a billion dollars and they go, great. Here you go, US Treasury. Here's here's your – we'll wire that billion dollars into the Treasury bank account and there you go. Well, that Federal Reserve, that billion dollars they lend, it, it didn't exist. So they give it to the Treasury and then the government through their spending bills determines how that money is spent in the economy. And the way the system is supposed to work is they take that billion dollar bond and then they go sell it and then China comes along or somebody else, Japan or Saudi Arabia and they buy that $1 billion treasury. And then so what happens is then the US government has to pay interest to China or Japan or whoever happened to buy that loan or that, that treasury bill if you will. And so it's interesting, the law was changed and I think it was in the 50s or the 60s, I can't remember. So what you hear a lot about, you probably heard of quantitative easing and people are like, what does that mean? What's monetizing debt? What does monetizing debt mean? So this is what happens in quantitative easing. So the, the government creates a promise, promise to repay a billion dollars. They give it to the Federal Reserve. Federal Reserve gives them a billion dollars. Then the US government spends it for whatever they spend it on and then the Federal Reserve on the open market sells that billion dollar IOU to China, whoever wants to buy it. And now the US government has to send interest money to whoever holds that government debt. Well, when the, the Federal Reserve does quantitative easing, they buy that billion dollar loan back. And as long as the Federal Reserve holds on to it, guess how much interest the taxpayers pay? Nothing. It becomes an interest-free loan. And so you say, well, why was the why was the Federal Reserve buying all that debt? Why have they done all this quantitative easing? Over the last seven, eight years, I don't, I can't remember how many. I think I, they got a couple trillion dollars worth of treasury bonds that they bought. Well, the reason they had to buy those is because there was no way the government could pay the interest on all those. So by the Federal Reserve owning them, they don't pay any interest on it. And I, the idea is that when the economy comes back, then they'll sell. Then the Federal Reserve will go and sell those those treasury bonds in the open market, and the government starts paying interest on them again. But at the end of the day, the money supply expands when the economy is doing well. But the thing you got to look at is that most of the time that money goes into like real estate and things of that nature. 
So it's just a matter of time before you, in essence, blow a bubble. In other words, there's more money supply chasing real estate than there is real estate. So you get competition for real estate. And that's when you see houses that are like one eighty nine nine all of a sudden go to $300,000 in six months. They ain't really worth $300,000. But the problem is it's supply and demand. And so that's what you see. You see assets blow up and then you see it, it, it contracts. And so let's look at some real world examples of like – let's look at Greece. So if you take Greece, when Greece joined – the European Union, the European Union has the ECB, the European Central Bank, and their currency is the euro. And the Greeks gave up the drachma, which was their own currency, which really is the very definition of a free sovereign state. They don't even have their own money anymore. And so what happens was their politicians borrowed and spent too much. And then what happens is the banks basically all say, hey, you, get, you know, the, the government has spent so much and they owe so much money and they're paying so much interest. Remember, they don't have their own central bank like we have the Federal Reserve. So they can't go – they can't print money. So what happens? The economy continues to contract and then what happens? The banks come in and they foreclose on everything. They just fleece the Greek people. And have you noticed their economy hasn't come back? It, it continued. There was huge demonstrations just this past, past week. What the Greeks really should do – is they should go back to the drachma because think about it. Money is a store of value, right? So whether that's the drachma, their currency, or the euro, or the US dollar, or the renminbi, or the ruble, or the Japanese yen, or gold, or silver, or fine art, or real estate, those are all stores of value. And the idea is to buy low, sell high. So like right now, like past several years, the, the US dollar has appreciated in value. Because, so why is that? So you, you, look at, you look at countries like Venezuela and you say, well, why is their currency not worth anything? Or why is – because you hear about Russia, like they've had inflation and their currency has dropped in value. Well, why is that? Because nobody will trade it. So the very nature, if you look at – like if you're going to buy – if you've got $100,000 to buy a property, you can buy a property in China. You can buy it in the United States. You can buy it in Brazil. You can buy it – in Venezuela, you can buy it in Japan. So if you buy, spend $100,000 and buy a $100,000 piece of property, where, where is it going to be safest? In other words, where is it going to hold value? Or you think about would you want to buy a $100,000 property in say Aleppo, Syria or Iraq or somewhere where there's war going on? You, or like Venezuela? What's interesting is you look like what Venezuela did as everything was socialized, so the government went to the oil, American oil companies and all these other outside oil companies and said, we're nationalizing all the oil companies. And so Exxon and all these other companies, BP, had built all this infrastructure, spent all these billions of dollars. And they just go, I, I know you spent $20 billion on all this stuff, but eh, it's only worth a billion. So we're going to give you a billion dollar check for it and nothing you can do about it. So what happens? So the economic reality is everybody's like, well, fuck. Well, I'm not going to invest business Businesses aren't going to invest money over in Venezuela because property rights are not very stable. I'm not going to go buy a house in Aleppo, Syria or somewhere in Iraq in the middle of a war zone because it's going to lose – the chances of some gangster coming along and taking it and me losing my money or it getting destroyed because there's war going on around it. So what happens – you look at a country like Venezuela, it's – 
nobody – no business will invest over there because the government might just come and take your shit. So it's too risky. And so what does that do to their currency? It destroys the value of their currency because they're not playing nice in essence. And so now it's like toilet paper is a luxury. People have a hard time buying fucking toilet paper over in Venezuela. You look at like Zimbabwe. The guy gets the, 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 what's his name? Mugabe or whatever his name is. He went to a lot of the people, the wealthy families that had land and stuff, and said, "Oh, well, you know, these were colonial powers, or that white person had all this money, and we're going to take their cattle ranch, and we're going to take their farm, and we'll give it, the, you know." So they basically take these people's property, and they have nothing. And so, because property is not stable, in other words, the likelihood that you, whatever you spend your money on over there is going to lose value makes it not a very stable place to invest in. Therefore, the currency is not really worth a lot. It's the same thing. If you buy a $100,000 property in Russia versus the United States, where is it most likely to hold – not only hold its value but appreciate in value? Obviously, the United States. And you look at, well, what happened with Germany, the Weimar Republic after World War I? Well, what happened well, – it's true that Germany was printing money. But all the, the people that they had signed the agreements with at the end of World War I said, oh, we don't want your fucking paper currency. We want your gold. We want your silver. Nobody wanted their currency. So what did it do? It crashed the value of their currency. You look at Iran, what's been going on with all the sanctions, even Russia. Bank, the international conglomeration of the countries and the banks, they just won't do business with them. And when people won't do business with you, when they perceive that your currency is not very valuable, it loses its value. And obviously, if you have to import certain things, if your currency drops in value, think whatever it is you're importing goes through the roof. Like buying food and different things over in Russia has gotten really fucking expensive now because of that. And when you understand how money flows, you look at a, a, a city like Detroit. You say, what the fuck is – why is the economy so bad in Detroit? Why has it been consistently bad? They have a money circulation problem. I mean what happened over you, – you had things like free trade and different things. So you had businesses, these international business corporations. They're just looking out for themselves and since they have the lawyers and the lobbyists and the money, they get free trade agreements like NAFTA and other things. And so what happens? Instead of paying an American worker $50,000 a year to make cars, I can go to China or Brazil or somewhere or Mexico and pay the same kind of person with the same kind of education and skill set $5,000 a year. And then I can just reimport the car here and sell the car for less in the United States and make more profit. And so what happens? It decimates the industry in the area like Detroit. And since there's no lending happening because basically there's no creditworthy borrowers in the Detroit area, what happens? It's just – the economy just plummets. So there's low monetary circulation in Detroit. But if you had like a – because we have a Federal Reserve system. There's, I think there's 12 branches total in the United States. We really should have a Federal Reserve branch in every single state capital. And that way, when something like that happens, when an industry gets fucking decimated, they can put together low interest type loans that will incentivize developers and other people to come. Because what you need to do, like whether it's Greece or Detroit or like even Puerto Rico, you look at Puerto Rico and they're on the verge of defaulting. It's like, well, why is that happening? The government borrowed money. And it's like, you got where did the money go? Where did it? 
Where does it circulate? What happens after it's spent? That's the important thing. So you look at Puerto Rico, they borrow money, they spend it into their economy, and where does it go? Well, it's typically you got other corporations that are not really based in Puerto Rico. They get paid, they do things over there, and the money leaves the country. So when the money circulation in a local ecosystem, if you will, reduces, the economy goes in the shitter, just like in Detroit. And so the people that are running Detroit in areas like that that are depressed, you've got to find a way to incentivize banks or foreign national corporations, somebody to come in there and start spending money into that local economy. It's the only way it's going to come back. Otherwise, you just have stagnant areas that don't really grow or go anywhere. There's a lot of stuff that you hear in the news about Trump and what he's talking about doing. Well, you look at like they talk about corporate inversions. So – and there's also – I think it was Carl Icahn, which you should definitely listen to guys like that when they talk about economics. These are some of the most successful, wealthiest people in the world. There's about $2.5 trillion of money that American corporations have made that is sitting overseas in overseas banks. Now, remember, fractional reserve banking allows banks to take whatever money is in their deposits and create up to 10 times that and lend it out at interest out of thin air. So instead of that $2.5 trillion sitting overseas in banks and those banks through fractional reserve banking are expanding their money supplies and growing their economies, we can repatriate that money. But with a corporate tax rate of 40%, what's their incentive? So by lowering the corporate tax rate to something that's competitive around 15%, everybody else that we're competing against now these corporations say, okay, it's an, actually an incentive to come back and repatriate that money, put it in American banks that gives banks more reserves as part of fractional reserves to create money out of thin air and lend it at interest. So if it's cheap for companies to come back and they pay a low tax rate over here, who are they going to hire? They're going to hire American workers. And so you hear also another thing you hear about all these foreign workers you hear all this stuff about mexico has been donald trump's talked a lot about that so just this one particular country you look at what is the net effect of the monetary circulation on our economy by the fact that we send 25 billion dollars to mexico every year to purchase oil we send them 25 billion dollars which goes into their economy and they give us obviously oil but what's interesting is when you look at all the – whether they're illegal aliens or maybe they're, even the people that work here legally, about – and this just this past year alone, 24 – I think it was 24, 23.9 billion dollars where Mexican people worked here in the United States. Some of them were obviously illegal and some of them were legal. They work here. What do they do with that money? They send it home. So you got 25 billion leaving with oil revenue and you got another 24 billion or so leaving because people are working in the United States, they're earning money and then they're they're not spending the money here. They're not putting gas in their car here. They're not making a mortgage payment in the United States. They're not going to Home Depot and buying shit. They're living with a bunch of other people and they're I've seen plenty of interviews with these people. They're like I don't want to become a citizen. I'm going to work for 10 years. I can save up enough money and I'm set for life. So you got 50 billion a year leaving the American economy going to Mexico alone. You look at China, our trade deficit, 500 billion dollars a year. 
So we're literally sending $500 billion a year, taking it out of our economy, sending it to China, which they pay their workers and it circulates in their economy and they send us stuff, the stuff that we buy here. You look at like – and not only with what you see with Mexico, you got people from Ecuador, you got people from Nicaragua, you got people from Brazil. I mean you literally – I think there's 11 the, – the statistics are there's like 11, 12 million people that are working in the United States illegally and what's interesting is the majority of them are like, I don't want to become a US citizen. I just want to work. I can work for 10 years. I can save fifty, sixty thousand dollars, whatever it has to be, and I'm set for life back in Ecuador. They can build a house, everything's free and clear, everything's paid for. So I don't know what all those figures are because I haven't looked at them, but I mean just Mexico alone, that's fifty billion dollars that that we send to Mexico that fifty billion dollars that leaves our economy. Five hundred billion leaves our economy and goes to China. So when you think about it and you add up all of the different countries like Ecuador, Nicaragua, I mean we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars. So there's literally – when you look at that, you think of the United States kind of like a ship. And every time we you know, when we print money out of thin air, it obviously devalues the currency. Just like you heard, scarcity creates value. I talk about it all the time. The same thing also has to do with money. If money is scarce, it has a lot of value. The more of it you print – and the faster you print it, the quicker it loses the value. When you look at like the Federal Reserve's number, like what a dollar, a U.S. dollar was worth 100 years ago. It's lost like 97% of its value in the last 100 years. In other words, if you went back in time, that dollar from 100 years ago is worth 97% less today than it was then. It's lost the value. But we're the world's reserve currency. And again, it's an elastic currency. It expands and contracts based upon what happens with the bank lending. And all of us, because we're whatever the, the banking system does, it affects all of us. It affects the money you can earn. Because I mean there were lots of companies when the economy went in the shitter, they were cutting people's salary back. You may have been one of those people. You may have had a friend or family member who got their salary cut, or maybe they lost their job outright. So when you understand how the economy booms and busts and it goes up and down, the ebb and flow of it, you can get out of the way of it. You can realize that you really have to have some money set aside for when those kinds of things happen. Or if you're thinking about buying a house or a car loan, it's like, okay, so what happens if the economy goes in the shitter and I lose my job? How long can I make that mortgage payment before I run out of cash? How long can I make that car payment before I run out of cash? You got to think about those things. Ideally, you want to have at least a couple of years of savings where you can pay your bills and you're not just – because if you're a paycheck to paycheck person, the next time the economy goes into shitter, the chances of you being able to pay your bills are slim to none. And so it's like when I see people, whether it's a politician or a talking head in the media talking about money or they talk about debt or this or that. None of that really matters. The only thing that matters is what is happening to the money supply. Is it expanding? Is it stable? Is it contracting? You look at Greece, you got all those people that are out of work. You got a lot of the younger Greeks are leaving and going and working elsewhere because they can't find jobs. So the net effect on the Greek economy is that the money supply is continuing to contract. 
So what's it going to take for that to turn around? Well, eventually what happens is the assets are being sold for pennies in the dollar, whether it's, it's the Acropolis or the buses or the electrical power generation plants. I mean all this stuff gets sold to outside interest for pennies in the dollar because that's part of the deal the IMF and the international bankers work out with the Greeks. They come in, they fleece them and they take their fucking assets. You know, like what I had a friend of mine who's in real estate and one of his clients, these are Middle Eastern clients, they have $80 million set aside to buy US property. So you remember all that money we send overseas places like Saudi Arabia or Mexico, wherever we buy oil from? Well, guess what? Those people get all that money and they give us oil and when the economy goes in the shitter, they come over here with their millions of dollars and your house that you lost – that that three hundred thousand dollar house you may have had, they come along and they buy that house for eighty or a hundred thousand dollars. That's what happens. So in, until you get asset destruction, you get that loan destruction, and until you get people coming and spending money into that economy, it's not going to come back. It may take the Greeks a decade. It may take them twenty years to recover from that. And as a human being, you got to look at that and say, is that really fair? Is that right? Is that, a, is that a stable system? Is that a balanced system? The smart thing to do is for the Greeks to go back to the drachma and say, we got our own currency, but hey, you know what? We'll take the euro as well. We'll take the American dollar. You want to pay with gold? Sure. We'll take gold. We'll take silver. Hey, you got Bitcoin? We'll take Bitcoin. Again, what is money? It has two purposes. The only reason for existing has two purposes. It's a medium of exchange. It makes commerce and sale and purchase transactions possible and it's a store of value. And if you don't think a particular currency is going to be worth something or it's going to lose value, you should be you shouldn't be buying it. You should move your currency into something that's appreciating. Remember the idea is to buy low, sell high. And people with money, that's what they do. They go places where the where there's blood in the streets, if you will, as they say. Like where the economy, you know, the the idea is the metaphor for civil unrest or when people are upset or the economy is really bad because you can get things for pennies on the dollar. Again, like I was talking about earlier about Detroit, same thing. They have a money circulation problem. Puerto Rico has a money circulation problem. You look at a country like Venezuela, what do they have? Well, their currency is not worth a lot because their government may come and take your shit. So what's the incentive for any business to come over there and spend money? There's none. Because there's a really good chance after you spend your money and you build something nice over, the government's just going to take it and give you next to nothing for it. So until there's a change in the government, nobody's going to want their their money, and it's going to continue to be worthless. Now, eventually, at some point, that government will probably collapse and fall, and they'll get somebody that's more moderate that'll come in there, and they'll repair all those relationships and. They'll undo a lot of the things that the socialists did to make it worthwhile for international businesses to start coming in there, taking their currency and also spending their own money to start to grow the economy. You know, When you look at like the, the stimulus package, like Obama, when he signed that stimulus package, when he came in office, there was something like $900 billion. Like where did the, what happened to all that money? Well, a lot of it was just bribes and payouts for all the people that got them elected in the special interest. And you looked at companies like I think GE got a loan. I think it was, I think it was somewhere around sixty 
$60 billion. Well, did they spend that $60 billion in the United States? No. Actually, a lot of it got spent overseas. They, I, I, I know one of the things they spent on, they built a locomotive plant in Brazil. I don't know how many billions of dollars they spent on a locomotive plant in Brazil, but you think about it. We devalued our currency by printing that $60 billion loan. We gave it to GE and instead of them spending it in our economy and circulating in our economy, they went and spent several billion dollars building a locomotive plant in Brazil. They hired Brazilian workers. They bought Brazilian concrete. They hired Brazilian contractors and it was great for their local economy because that money was circulating in their economy. It's just like uh, was it uh, Ford. They were going to build like a two – Two and a half billion dollar auto plant in Mexico because they could hire cheaper workers over there than the American workers. I mean, it, it, from a business perspective, it's like they're just trying to stay viable. But I, Trump is right when he talks about these idiot politicians that negotiate these trade deals to where you can't compete against that. You, you can't have somebody that's making fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year working on an assembly line competing against somebody that's willing to do that same work for 5000 in China or Mexico or some other country. I mean that's just fucking stupid. So the more people that understand how the economy works and the banking system works and how money circulates and how it gets into the economy, the more they're going to demand from their politicians that they enact policies that make sure that money circulates in a stable way instead of an unbalanced way because you look at the extremes of it like when you have a currency that nobody wants or it's an imbalance, you look at Greece, you look at Venezuela, even you know you look at like Iran or you look at Russia you know, with the sanctions, their currency lost value and it made it really hard for them to buy things that they either didn't make or didn't grow over there that they had to get from overseas. And at the end of the day, we're all connected. And when you look at the system, the reality is we have enough land on the planet to grow enough food for everybody. We have enough resources on the planet to where everybody can live in a nice home, everybody can have a nice car, everybody can breathe clean air. I mean, if you've been following some of the things that Elon Musk has done with his battery technology, the Gigafactory, and all the solar that he's going to institute, he literally single-handedly is going to replace the electrical grid with solar and batteries. They're already working with electrical com- companies to do this. And so you look at like your nuclear power plants and your electrical power plants, you know, all the ones where you know people complain. Like I mean, you look at China, and it's like, like that. I mean, I wouldn't want to breathe that fucking air. But in the next 15, 20 years, all that stuff's going to be replaced with solar and battery technology. I mean Elon Musk said we're, we can do this, we're going to do this and we are doing this. He's already calced it all out. The technology exists to do this and you know, when you look at the world as a whole and where humanity is going, I mean you look at like Afghanistan. I mean you literally got people that they have no running water, they don't have electricity and in the winter instead of – what they burn to keep their houses warm is they take like their, the, the shit, the dung from their animals and they roll it in the little balls. And those little balls, they're flammable. So they light them on fire and that's how they heat their houses in the winter. Their right hand they eat with. Their left hand they wipe their butt with. 
before the United States was involved in Afghanistan, the life expectancy of the Af- the average Afghan was 35 years. It's now 65, which is amazing. When you look at technology and you're able to literally go in there in these remote areas and we I mean there's most of the people on this planet don't have, you know, you're going to have a billion people are going to go to bed hungry tonight. So you literally can go in, you can plop a cell phone tower in the middle of nowhere. They can buy a cell phone. They can put a solar panel on their roof with a battery pack that charges during the day. So at night, they got lights. They can charge their phone. They can run their computer. They can run their pump. They can put a well in. And now they got running water. So you got people that are literally living from hand to mouth that are going right into the modern internet age in a matter of years. And that's really amazing. And if more people understood the financial system and the monetary system and how money circulates, then we wouldn't have all these pro- problems and these imbalances. Like I said, it's really – it's just a, man- a matter of management of resources. Humanity, we, collective, we have to do a better job of managing the circulation of money in our economies and we also have to do a good job – of managing our resources because again all the land that we need to grow all the food we need to feed everybody I mean we literally could make the world a five-star paradise but obviously you have to do things in a balanced set way because when you think about it like you look at concrete that's used to build things well there's only so much capacity right now so if you get too many people needing concrete what happens the cost of concrete goes through the roof or steel or glass or any of these other things so we have to take those things in account and give the people that excavate this stuff out of earth, give them time to build up their capacity. But I mean you look – it's really – this is the most exciting time to be alive as human beings because 15, 20, 30 years from now, you look at robotics and how they're coming, coming along and coming online. Liddy, we're going to have – Places that are going to grow all the food we need. It's going to be completely automated. 15, 20, 30 years from now, people can be working two, three hour, two, three day work weeks, and the rest of their time, they can be enjoying their lives. Just something to think about. There's some really great books that I highly recommend. There's an article that I did several years ago called What Is Money Really? And there's a great uh, documentary that Bill Still did called The Secret of Oz, which I highly recommend, where he goes into detail the history of money, where it came from, and it's really fascinating and really enlightening. Also, uh, Ellen Brown's um, book, uh, Web of Debt, which is really good. Uh, The Creature from Jekyll Island, which is – I can't think of his name. If you Google The Creature from Jekyll Island, I think it was published in 96. He's done a – a couple editions since then. It's a you know a best-selling book. Really fascinating on the history of monetary po- policy, the banking industry, and those are just some you know really great books. And you know, like I said, I highly recommend you watch The Secret of Oz. That's a fascinating documentary. It'll really open your eyes because we all need to know this. We all need to understand this stuff. And you can't just stick your head in the sand and say, I don't care about it. I just want some pussy. I just want to get laid. I want to build a business. I want to – you have to understand this stuff because the more – it's like what the quote on the back of my book. Enlighten the people generally 
And tyranny and oppressions of body and mind will vanish like evil spirits at the dawn of day. If you're ignorant of something, if you've got a blind spot, if you've got a knowledge gap in any area of your life that's important, you open yourself up to get manipulated or completely fucking blindsided when the economy goes in the shitter. And so when you listen to a politician or a pundit talk about the financial system, they start using those big words like quantitative easing and special investment vehicles and tapering. All they're really you – know, quantitative easing is just basically the Federal Reserve buying government bonds that are already out there. And once they've bought those bonds and they've given more money printed out of thin air to whoever they bought the bond from, the United States government doesn't have to pay interest on that as long as the Federal Reserve holds that bond. It's definitely something to think about and it's something that's really fucking important because what you're going to find, the more successful – because when I was younger, what I focused on was making money and becoming more successful with the opposite sex and having better quality relationships and getting the things I want. And once you get the kind of relationships you want and you're able to get the kind of material things you want and you build the kind of businesses that you want. I mean, if you look at all the wealthiest people, even like the original, like Andrew Carnegie, or a Bill Gates, or a Warren Buffett, or Mark Zuckerberg, especially like well, you know, some of these guys are doing with the gifting pledge, where they're giving half of their money away. The most richest, most successful people in the world, they get to a certain point, and they've got all the money they could ever spend, and they have all the stuff that they could ever need. What do they do with their money? They start giving. They, they want to do something to leave the world a little better than they found it. And for me personally as a coach, not only do I want to have pe- help people reach their full potential, but I want to make the world a better place. But in order to do that, we all need to understand how it fucking works. It's so important. So definitely check out those resources I, I mentioned, those books that I mentioned I highly recommend. You get them all those books. You can if you're on my website and you click the products tab, the recommended products, all those things are there. And again, I highly recommend that you check out Bill Still's documentary, The Secret of Oz, and also my article that I did called What Is Money Really? So I will talk to you soon. Hey.